Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, September 1st, 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Orion Rooney. Today, we will be reading the following articles. Hot Shots by Jesse J. Gray. When Students Don't Show Up, Attendance Detectives Are On The Case by Anne Shimke. Changing Hearts and Minds Three Miles Per Hour at a Time by Ben Berman. Hustling in the High Country by Nick Hutchinson. Stories We Tell by Michael J. Casey. Fed Well by John Lendorf. A Family Malt and a Farm Brew by Matt Mainpaw. The Roosts Sizzling Shishitos and Bangin' Cauliflower Make Happy Hour Even Happier by John Lendorf. Hot Shots by Jesse J. Gray. The death of a Colorado-based federal wildland firefighter in Oregon shines as a spotlight on a dangerous, essential job. A pay raise could be in store, but is it enough? At its most basic, the mission of a federal wildland firefighter is to manage wildfire's essential role in the ecosystem, while protecting lives and property from destruction. That's what Colin Hagen was doing as the Big Swamp Fire burned near the Williamette National Forest in southwest Oregon last month. The 27-year-old was killed by a falling tree while battling the 120-acre blaze. Assigned to a traveling hotshot crew based in Craig, Colorado, Hagen was dispatched from his home base to help local units more than a thousand miles away when the Pacific Northwest wildfire kicked into overdrive. Like too many others who take on the dangerous job, nearly 500 wildland firefighters died in the line of duty between 1990 and 2016. When Hagen answered the call to serve on the front lines of the inferno, he didn't know it would be his last. I haven't actually hauled anybody off the hill, but I've been involved in the processions and memorials. Kelly Martin, former chief of fire and aviation at Yosemite National Park and president of the nonprofit Grassroots Wildland Firefighters says, it's nothing short of gut-wrenching to think this is actually a part of our job. Hagen's tragic story resonates in communities like Boulder, with the historically destructive Marshall Fire still fresh in the community's memory, along with other cities and towns on the bleeding edge of the climate crisis. As warmer, drier conditions lead to longer fire seasons and bigger blazes in our idyllic slice of the growing wildland-urban interface, the misunderstood job of a federal firefighter is poised to become even more essential and dangerous in the years ahead. 
Colorado's forests were once too moist to be able to support really big fires. Michael Kodas, a Boulder-based senior editor at Inside Climate News and author of Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame, says, Back then, a 30,000-acre fire was a huge event. That's barely a blip on the radar now. But for federal workers like Hagen who dedicate their lives to battling the nation's worsening wildland blazes, compensation hasn't kept pace with their state, municipal, or private counterparts. Last year, the federal government increased base pay for wildland firefighters to $15 per hour, along with temporary retroactive payments totaling the lesser of $20,000, or 50% of their annual base salary as part of the 2021 Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. Spearheaded by Representative Joe Neguse, last month's passage of the Wildfire Response and Drought Resiliency Act, H.R. 5118, in the U.S. House of Representatives, attempts to further address this disparity. In addition to climate resiliency measures and mental health leave and hazard pay for federal firefighters, the bill would lift starting wages to approximately $20 per hour, a slightly higher rate than a McDonald's employee could expect to earn in Boulder. It's one of the most intense federal jobs when it comes to danger and difficulty. The demanding physical part is the terrain, smoke, and toxins these young people are exposed to pretty much 24-7 while they're on these sites, Martin says. The fact that our job is compensated equally to service and retail workers is so imbalanced. Our house is on fire. Without casting aspersions on those workers in less dangerous but underpaid sectors of the economy, Martin emphasizes the unique skills and deadly challenges faced by more than 10,000 men and women of the U.S. Forest Service who fight wildfires in all 50 states and internationally. These include advanced skill units like smoke jumpers, who descend by parachute into burn areas, and helitac crews who respond via helicopter. But the lion's share of the work is done by hand, engine, and hotshot crews. This job has changed, and it's extremely demanding, Martin says. What was once a solid summer gig for college students has since become a near year-round gauntlet of physical, mental, and emotional exhaustion, thanks in part to a changing climate. These firefighters are immersed in an emergency situation for sometimes up to nine months of the year. For a sense of how the climate emergency is changing the face of an already dangerous job, look to the snowpack. The white peaks of local formations like Bear Mountain, towering over the site of last spring's 190-acre NCAR fire, tell a story that worries local wildfire experts and signals even tougher work ahead for wildland firefighters. What you're seeing in that snowcap is a little trickle reservoir that is keeping the forest below it moist and less likely to burn. And so, if your snow melts off earlier in the year and arrives later in the year, then that forest is available to burn for a much longer portion of the year, Michael Kodas says. We see that very strongly throughout the Rockies, but particularly here in Colorado. 
For wildland firefighters, that means containing larger blazes for longer stretches of time. Martin, who spent 35 years as a career wildland firefighter with the U.S. Forest Service and National Park Service, says this new reality is a far cry from the job she signed up for decades ago. When I stepped out as a newly minted firefighter, it was not physically overly taxing. I wasn't immersed in firefighting day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, she says. But now we have warmer, drier summers and massive droughts, like what we're seeing with the Colorado River. Our house is on fire. On top of those increased demands spurred in part by climate change, the job also leaves many overworked employees chasing overtime to offset low wages and the compounding expenses of the job. When dispatched, for example, many wildland firefighters pay to live in close quarters with their fellow crew members. Not only are they paying rent or a mortgage at home, but they also have to pay rent at their remote deployment work site, Martin says. So it's compounding in a way that a lot of people really don't understand. And when it comes to benefits, these federal employees face similar challenges. According to an analysis from grassroots wildland firefighters, potentially millions of dollars in additional earnings could be the difference between the pension of a hand crew captain employed by the Colorado Division of Fire Prevention, CDFP, versus one working for the federal government. It was just a couple years ago that they forced through legislation to give health care to seasonal wildland firefighters, CODIS says, which is kind of shocking when you consider the dangers of the job and the long-term health impacts that are increasingly associated with it. Considering those health risks, compounding expenses, and the changing nature of the job, Advocates like Martin say the modest entry-level pay raise legislated by H.R. 5118 is a crucial first step, but it's still not enough to address ongoing staffing shortages. If you're really looking at recruitment, retention, and promotion of a highly trained and responsive national network of wildland firefighters, this doesn't get us here, she says. But even this incremental improvement to working conditions for entry-level wildland firefighters faces a tough challenge on its way to becoming the law of the land. Whether these new benefits actually make it to the workers putting their lives on the line depends on a universe of factors within the unpredictable machinations of the federal government. Will they actually get it assigned to a committee? Will the Senate actually hear it? Will they vote on it? Then it needs to get passed to the president's desk to be enacted, Martin says. That's the uncertainty we're dealing with now. When students don't show up, attendance detectives are on the case. By Ann Shimke of Chalkbeat, Colorado. The front door of the house was ajar when Dominic Castillo and Julia Madera approached. They were looking for a teenager named Jason, who'd missed the first five days of school at Northridge High in Greeley. The boy wasn't there, but his father was, dusty from working on the renovations inside. After Castillo explained that they hadn't seen Jason at school yet, the man quickly dialed the boy's mother and handed over his cell phone. 
Madera took the call and, speaking in Spanish, learned that the family planned to send him to one of the district's alternative schools. She said she meant to call, Madera said, as she and Castillo returned to her SUV, ready for the next stop on their home visit. Castillo and Madera are on the front lines of a push to get kids back in school after a pandemic that compounded many of their problems that contribute to chronic absenteeism, including student disengagement, academic struggle, and financial insecurity. The rationale is simple. Students have to be in class to learn. The Greeley-Evans District in northern Colorado is one of many districts nationwide using federal COVID dollars to fund attendance-boosting efforts. The 22,000 student district is in the second year of a three-year, $644,000 contract with the Denver-based consulting company Zero Dropouts to track down missing high schoolers and help them catch up on coursework or credits. Castillo, the Northridge cheer coach, and Madera, a former secretary at the school, are among 14 Zero Dropouts employees, also known as attendance advocates embedded in the district's five high schools this year. They have a host of responsibilities, from helping out in classes and monitoring hallways, to calling and visiting the homes of absent students. The job is part detective work, part social work, and part paperwork. Before the pandemic, 35% of Greeley-Evans students were chronically absent, meaning they missed 10% or more of school days. That number rose to 40% during 2020 to 21, well above the state rate of 26%. Lanny Haas, Special Projects Manager at Zero Dropouts, said advocates help intervene quickly when warning signs pop up. An increase in absences, a grade that's fallen to D or F, or problematic behavior. The team works in tandem with counselors, mental health specialists, and other school staff. Attendance and course recovery are probably your two biggest challenges at a high school, said Haas, who formerly served as a high school principal in nearby Loveland. The challenges are the same pre, post, and during the pandemic, he said. They're just more pronounced now. No falling through the cracks. The four attendance advocates at Northridge High use a small room connected to the main office as their home base. It's rimmed with computer workstations that often display color-coded spreadsheets showing period-by-period -period absences and other metrics that help them flag kids in danger of slipping away. Along the wall is a cardboard box of famous Amos chocolate chip cookie packs. Students zip into the room occasionally to grab a snack from the box. On a recent morning, Aaron Eckenrode, an advocate who'd previously worked as a juvenile probation officer, made phone calls looking for 54 students on that day's no-show list. She talked to some parents, left messages for others, and sometimes hit dead ends. She did solve a few mysteries. She found that two families had moved out of the district. One, refugees from Ukraine, had relocated to California and another had moved to a nearby district. Like high schoolers everywhere, Northridge students struggle for many reasons. 
They may find their classes boring, face chaotic home lives, or hold jobs that leave them too exhausted for school. About two-thirds of the school's 1,200 students are eligible for federally subsidized meals, a measure of poverty. BS, the world's largest meat processing company, operates a plant in Greeley. Attendance advocates say the pandemic has also eroded students' social and self-advocacy skills. Teens are dialed into the digital world, but can be muted when it comes to real-life interactions. Castillo, who helps monitor a class where students work online to catch up, said he's seen students stare at a locked computer screen rather than raising their hands to ask for help. I just stopped going. Last year, Angel, now a 10th grader at Northridge, missed lots of school, more than 300 class periods last time he checked. Some of his friends had already dropped out, joining their fathers on construction jobs. I started digging a lot towards the end, he says. Sometimes I just feel school ain't for me, so I just stopped going. But Angel eventually came back as he counts Sheena Lopez, one of the school's attendance advocates, as someone he can relate to at Northridge. Often, he'll stop by to see her three times a day. We'll just have really good conversations about my day or her day, he said. She's so nice to me. I really like her. Connecting with kids in a non-teaching role creates a different relationship, said Lopez. It's different work. We're their friends. We're here for them, she said. I always tell them I'm going to do whatever it takes to help you succeed. Sometimes the moments that mean the most aren't what attendance advocates expect. When a girl named Loren, a senior cheerleader, recently stopped by, she mentioned how surprised she was when Eckenrode pronounced her name right on the first try during an advisory class. Wow, you remembered that? Eckenrode asked. That was a life-changing moment, Loren says. That's the first time someone's gotten my name right in my whole life, my whole 17 years. When calls and visits fail. Even when attendance advocates track students down, it can be difficult to get them back in class. Madeira recalled one student she worked with last year who stopped coming to school completely after a couple months, his absences a long red stripe on his attendance chart. The 10th grader didn't seem to want to go to Northridge or anywhere else. When she dropped off an application for an online program, he threw the papers on the floor. She ended up calling the family more than 20 times, visiting their home four times, and texting the boy's mother a few times. Nothing changed until she referred the teen to truancy court. I didn't want it to be like that, said Madeira. But the move worked and the teen returned to Northridge last April, at first shy with his hood pulled over his head. He attended consistently for the last two months and made up some of his missed work. This year, Madeira spotted him on the first day of school, August 11th. Oh my God, he's here, she thought. Anne Shimke is a senior reporter at Chalkbeat, covering early childhood issues and early literacy. Contact Anne at ashimke at chalkbeat.org. Chalkbeat, chalkbeat.org, is a nonprofit news organization.
changing hearts and minds three miles per hour at a time. Through memoir and critique, Denverite Jonathan Stalls examines what it means to be a pedestrian by Ben Berman. You could say Jonathan Stalls is a full-time pedestrian. You could probably glean that from his toe shoes, well-worn walking stick, and routine propensity to trek more than a dozen miles per day. As we circle Feral Lake in Denver's city park, Stalls fiddles with a leaf he found, greets a passing jogger, and jumps back to conversation about his gripes with Denver's pedestrian infrastructure. There's perhaps no greater summation of Stahl's passion for pedestrianism than his newest publication, Walk, Slow Down, Wake Up, and Connect at 1 to 3 miles per hour, released on August 16th, North Atlantic Books. Through the philosophical collection of short essays, recollections, and memoirs, it's evident that walking is to Stahl's what painting was to Bob Ross a way to engage with the world at a slower pace while learning about yourself. It's about being a moving participant the way you're made to be, Stalls says. Much of the book focuses on a cross-country journey Stalls took in 2010. It was totally out of the blue. I had never had a multi-day hiking experience before. I wanted an experience that would reorient and recalibrate everything in my life, Stalls admits. He was 26 years old, coming to terms with his queerness and searching for belonging. There was a lot of chaos that I suppressed and buried. I wanted to learn from the natural landscape, the mountains and desert, small towns and cities. I wanted to be with the things that were hard on the inside. I was transformed by the experience. I learned from people, from strangers, at an unhurried pace. Eight months later, Stalls and his blue healer husky reached the Pacific coast, and Stalls found his mindset anew. He came to realize how easily he could focus his thoughts and manage his emotions while he walked. Our bodies are made, whether you're on foot or in a wheelchair, to be in movement, to have your body literally mirroring a moving world, Stalls says, gesturing to the swaying trees around us as we continue our second, third lap of the lake. If our cell's natural instinct when faced with stimulus or adversity is to keep moving, Stahl's wonders, shouldn't it be ours as well? His newfound perspective made him uniquely attuned to the reality of being a pedestrian in everyday places and spaces. I was filled with information related to how unsafe and harmful it was for hundreds of people I would interact with at intersections, Stahl says. They were under bridge, overpasses, darting and surviving. So much chaos. Stalls developed a brand new framework he calls Pedestrian Dignity. That framework provided the namesake of Stalls' TikTok account, a platform for sharing the empathy, healing, and activism he discovered on that cross-country walk. Stalls regularly shares point-of-view videos of his treks through Denver, aiming to enlighten people on the lived experience of pedestrians as he expounds on poor infrastructure conditions and anything else that crosses his mind in less than 60 seconds. This might actually fit me a lot better than any other social media app, because it's quick. It can be more conscious thoughts and not overly planned, Stahl's muses. I just started it as an experiment, 
it took off and it was so affirming. It's a tool that's more natural for the way I'm wired. Though it's likely the widest audience that Stalls currently reaches, his videos regularly get viewed and shared by an audience of more than 100,000 and growing. He has other platforms that predate both TikTok and his writings. Stahl's endeavors mainly revolve around Intrinsic Paths, an organization focused on art, community events, and most importantly, walking. Stahl's regularly hosts meetup walks, inviting people to embark on a multi-pronged fitness, spiritual, and activism-oriented journey across the trails and sidewalks of Denver. People join me for a day or just an hour, Stahl says. I see how people get out of their car, experience their neighborhood community for the first time on foot. They're like, wow, I had no idea this amazing park was here. Or, I had no idea how unsafe it is right across from where my mother goes to an assisted living facility. Even in an outdoorsy state like Colorado, Stalls is dismayed with the way walking is relegated to recreation. It's a more utilitarian pedestrian framework, like this is my home, office, commute life. And then there's the escape to the trail, he says. A major focus of his book seeks to bridge that gap. Stahl's hopes that society at large will realize the positive benefits of incorporating walking into everyday life, rather than confining it to a recreational experience, novelty or luxury, or worse, ignoring the inequities that arise when cities make walking an uncomfortable experience. For Stahl's, there is no walk purely for pleasure, or a walk oriented toward content creation. Walking seems really simple and basic, Stahl says. But when we think about complex social, political, or relational realities, it's always between two human bodies. Your experience moves with mine. It's an actual tool for teams, campaigns, relationships, peers, neighbors, whoever you're in tension with. Stalls admits that reframing U.S. cities around pedestrians is a long, arduous, and frustrating process, often hampered by zoning laws, car-centric culture, and thousands of miles lacking sidewalks. Denver has an estimated 520 miles with no sidewalks. That's not even mentioning issues like cracks in the sidewalk, hampering those in wheelchairs, or crosswalks changing too fast or not existing at all. Dismantling these barriers through law could take years. I wish that wasn't the case. I wish all the lights would just turn on. It can be overwhelming, Stalls admits. It's been helpful to just focus on the specific container of a human body. That's kind of been my anchoring ground. My framework is, how are we centering the lived experience of human bodies moving the way they're meant to? For Stalls, that means spreading the word through his videos, writings, and conversations with everyday residents on his walks, hoping to change hearts and minds at three miles per hour. I want to trust that you, city council members, are working to do some disruption around the defaults within the system. And you can trust that I'm working outside to do some disrupting in the public sphere. Then we've got a good thing going. At the heart of Stahl's book are practical solutions for pedestrian anxieties, barriers, or unfamiliarities. Live it, Stahl's advises. Replace some of your car trips and experience what it's like to walk to the grocery store. Just be open and available. 
connect to why it's important for us to be doing this more. Hustling in the High Country A Q&A with Colorado's newest bluegrass troubadours by Nick Hutchinson Jamgrass is often associated with the state of Colorado, which has given birth to many of the genre's well-acclaimed groups, including Leftover Salmon, The String Cheese Incident, and Yonder Mountain String Band. As time marches on, the tradition of pushing the boundaries of bluegrass continues, with younger players happily joining the party and adding fresh spins to the sound. One of the latest groups to gather momentum in the Centennial State is High Country Hustle, a quartet out of the Durango area that won the Winter Wondergrass Band Competition in 2020 and is rapidly ascending the peaks of acoustic twang while pleasing its listeners. Boulder Weekly had the pleasure of chatting with the band's guitarist and vocalist, Andy Gallen, who also works as a graphic designer when he's not playing a high and lonesome tune. This interview has been edited for length and clarity. Boulder Weekly. What's the history of the band's name? Andy Gallen. Choosing a band name is always hard, but I had a huge list of names that we were considering. High Country Hustle just happened to be one of them. We play fast bluegrass from the high country. Boulder Weekly. You and your bandmates all recently graduated from Fort Lewis College? Andy Gallen. Yeah, we all went to Fort Lewis, and that's where we met. Three of us are from Colorado, but our mandolin player, Seth Yokel, is from South Carolina. Our fiddle player, Denon Jones, is from Netherland. Our bass player, Charlie Henry, is from Littleton, and I grew up in Telluride. Boulder Weekly. I'm guessing you took in a few bluegrass festivals living down in Telluride. Andy Gallen. Definitely. I've been to like 20 plus. I haven't missed one in 16 years. I hit my first Telluride Bluegrass Festival sometime in the early 90s when I was a little kid. Boulder Weekly. What did you major in at Fort Lewis College? Andy Gallen. I got a degree in graphic design. Our bass player also got a degree in graphic design. Our mandolin player is a geologist, and our fiddle player is a middle school orchestra teacher. Boulder Weekly. You all recently released an album called Weather the Storm. Did the title have anything to do with the pandemic and all that went along with it? Andy Gallen. It kind of ended up being that way, but that wasn't necessarily what I was thinking at its inception. I wrote the song that's the title track before the pandemic, and then it kind of took on new meaning from everything that happened during the pandemic. Boulder Weekly. How do you guys come to know Jake Simpson from the Little Smokies? I saw that he produced your album. Andy Gallen. Our fiddle player had taken some lessons from Jake in the past, and we were lucky enough to have him jump on board as a producer on the album. He really helped take it to another level. We recorded some of the songs on the album in Fort Collins at Swing Finger Studio, and then we finished it up down in Durango. Boulder Weekly. Will you get back to the front range soon? Andy Gallen. Yeah, we play most of our gigs up on the front range, unless we're going out of state. But we like playing down in the Durango area, too. It's a lot of driving to get to gigs, but we like living down in the Four Corners area. 
It's nice to be down in southwest Colorado. We've talked about moving up closer to the Denver area, but for now, we're enjoying living down here and bringing the music up there. We like to camp and get out on the river when we can. We like the outdoors a lot. So far, it's been a good run. We just turned five this year. We made it through the pandemic, raised a bunch of money on Kickstarter for our latest album, and had a great summer. We're chugging away. It's been great. We'll be back up on the front range in a few months. Stories we tell. A Slippery Case of Deception in My Old School by Michael J. Casey. You know something's amiss from the start. There's something benign about this secondary school classroom setting, something pedestrian about the participants that makes your antenna immediately go up. The presence of the actor Alan Cumming is the second indication. Everyone else sitting before the camera looks like a normal human being, an average Joe capable of playing no one other than themselves. Cumming, on the other hand, has a presence. There's a way actors can look directly into the camera that can make you look past the obvious. And my old school is all about looking past the obvious. Cumming isn't the only actor in my old school, the new documentary from Jono McLeod, but he might be the only one you recognize. Cumming is here because Brandon Lee, or is it Brian McKinnon, doesn't want to sit for an on-camera interview. Lee agreed to an audio one, so McLeod called Cumming to lip-sync Lee's side of the story. The words you hear are from Lee, but the facial tics and the mesmerizing eyes are courtesy Cumming. It feels like faint praise to say this might be one of Cumming's best performances, but it is. My old school is all about performances. I'm dancing here, mainly because I don't want to give anything away. Neither the story nor the players, and certainly not why McLeod wants to tell it. Cumming isn't the only thing filling in McLeod's missing pieces. When one of the dozen interviewees recounts a story, McLeod and Rory Lowe use animation to illustrate the past tense. The animation design exists somewhere between Archie Comics and the MTV show Daria. Period appropriate references both. Here's what I will say. My Old School is a documentary by way of investigation. The main character, Lee, arrives at the Bearsden Academy in the posh part of Glasgow, Scotland, in the middle of the term. He doesn't immediately make friends, but he does integrate himself into the school, first as a friend, then as a brainiac, finally as the lead performer in the school's production of South Pacific. Everyone seems to like Lee, particularly a couple of the outcasts. One, Brian, because he has terrible taste in music. The other, Stefan, because he's black in a predominantly white school. Their interviews kind of break your heart once you learn what's really going on. The others, particularly one of Lee's teachers and the girl who starred opposite him in South Pacific, raise a slew of ethical questions. It's those questions that make Lee's story so damn fascinating. So much so that it was a major news story in the mid-90s. A movie titled Younger Than Springtime was even set to film. And who was cast to play Lee in this fictitious retelling of a phenomenal fact? Why, Alan Cumming, of course. That movie never came to be. 
but my old school did. I can't imagine this story told any better than the way McLeod does. Some things you gotta see to believe, especially when they're true. For more, tune in to After Image Fridays at 3pm on KGNU 88.5 FM and online at KGNU.org. Email questions or comments to editorial at boulderweekly.com. Fed well. A true farm-to-table truck aims to radically change how chefs treat farmers and dish great food. By John Lendorf. If it were up to Donna Merton, you would never see a menu until you arrive at a restaurant and the dishes would feature ingredients that we now throw away. We have to turn the whole restaurant model on its head, says Merton, owner of Fed, short for Farm Eats Direct, a two-year-old catering company. We shouldn't be ordering industrial ingredients. We should be thinking, what's best for local farms? Take the organ burger a dish occasionally featured at her fed food trailer at Lyons New Rock Garden Beer Garden. There's plenty of organs out there that nobody buys, she says. We get the trifecta of kidneys, hearts, and livers from the farmers, combine them with mushrooms, and grill it. You'd be amazed how many customers love them and get disappointed when they aren't on the menu. Even popular dishes don't stay on her menu long, because she never knows which ingredients her crew will have to cook with. Fed runs an unusual restaurant, CSA, for local farmers. I guarantee them a certain amount of dollars every week, and they can bring me whatever they want. They sometimes ask, but I say, you guys know I'll take whatever you couldn't sell to everybody else, restaurants, stores, CSAs, and farmers markets. I honestly do not care, Merton insists. Whatever it is, I want it. With perfect timing, our chat is quashed as huge bags, crates, and boxes of carrots, peppers, and greens arrive unexpectedly from Speedwell Farm. It's like Christmas, Merton says, with an ear-to-ear -ear grin. And this is just today. It's like this every day, she says, sharing a sample from a flat of very ripe yellow cherry tomatoes. I think the flavor profile is better for produce that has been out in the field longer. Among the dozen farms that show up with ingredients are Lazy J Farm, pork, Longmont's Caribou Ranch, beef, and Buckner Ranch, lamb. The menu this sunny weekday includes a juicy free-range beef burger topped with grilled peaches, grilled ground lamb with house-made yogurt sauce, and roasted zucchini pasta with caramelized onions and peaches. Accompaniments are salads with sprouted grains, crunchy fermented veggies along with sautéed peppers, onions, and squash. That's the menu today, at least. When all the stuff comes in, we look at it and agree on how we're going to use it, and then we start processing it, Merton says. Needless to say, Fed requires cooks with a certain joie de vivre. I have no system, I have no structure, there are no recipes, and there's no menu. Some people have meltdowns and can't deal with it, Merton says, adding that culinary school students have to unlearn everything they were told about farm-to-table food. Merton is serious about using everything. Farms bring us a lot of bones we turn into stock. 
The pig skin we fry into chicharron. Then there are the pig heads. We boil them in big pots, she says. I love the delicate pig cheek meat. Farms mostly dispose of aging roosters and hens that stop laying. Merton wanted those tough old birds. I have a family recipe. You slow braise them for 16 hours and the meat gets so tender. That bag of carrots she just hauled to the cooler will be chopped and fermented or pickled. The carrot greens will become chimichurri sauce. Merton also fries the fronds as a crispy topping on dishes. She loves herb and kale stems that stay crunchy when fermented. We've even figured out how to deal with all the surplus eggs. We freeze the whites, pickle hard-boiled eggs, and make salt-cured duck egg yolks, Merton says. We're like squirrels trying to plan for the winter. It's also giving money back to farmers for food that would have been a financial loss. The kitchen also crafts vinegars and kombucha, sprouts organic seeds and beans, and generally upgrades the nutritional profile of everything. But Fed doesn't preach to the customers. Luring is better than lecturing, Merton says. Once people try our food, they trust us and appreciate the way we do things. Merton had already enjoyed a 20-year career as an architect and real estate developer when her drive to change the food system sent her to the University of Colorado for a graduate degree in food systems. She pitched her idea for the Fed truck and won a venture business challenge. She launched Fed after her 2020 graduation. However, Fed's real origin story starts in Indiana. Merton enjoyed time with her grandmother, a private chef with a 100-acre farm. She taught me how to cook. That's where I learned these old-school farmhouse practices. You just didn't waste anything, Merton says. That includes what little that she doesn't make edible. Anything left over goes back to the farms, she says. It's full circle. You feed organic produce to the animals, which produce healthier meat. The Fed trailer in Lyons will be open year-round, weather permitting. Merton's mobile food truck offers food plans for families and caters events. We don't have advanced menus for them either, she says. Opening a large new catering kitchen in Loveland will allow her to feed her rapidly growing business and produce seasonal products to be sold in local markets. I feel it's critical to grow. The more we can grow, the more food we can buy from the farmers and help the local food economy, Merton says. Last year, we saved over 40,000 pounds of food, and we will at least double that this year. Local food news, Brasserie Renaissance. Bova's Market and Grill has reopened at 1128th Street, Frontage Road. After being closed since 2020, Brasserie 1010 has reopened at 1011 Walnut Street. The eatery's original chef, Tony Hessel, will head up the kitchen. The Stone Cup and Lions is closing on September 5th after 18 years in business. Words to chew on. The farmers suffer a lot to get restaurants perfect produce. Statistically, 40% of what is grown in the U.S. stays on the field. How do we as chefs capture that food and keep it from being wasted? Donna Merton John Lendorf hosts Radio Nibbles on KGNU, news.kgnu.org slash category slash radio dash nibbles. 
Email him at nibbles at boulderweekly.com. A family malt and a farm brew. Germinating with the Cody's of Colorado Malting Company by Matt Mainpaw. There is a sort of alchemy that goes into brewing and distilling. Grain, water, yeast, and thyme yield something beautiful and delicious. Down in Alamosa, brothers Josh and Jason Cody of Colorado Malting Company, CMC, have spent the last decade helping Colorado brewers and distillers attain ideal alcoholic alchemies with farm-grown grains and hand-tended malts. Colorado staples like Spirit Hound Distillers, A.D. Laws, Coors, and New Belgium have harnessed CMC malts to produce libations past and present. Malting is at the center of brewing and distilling. Fermentation occurs when yeast consumes sugars, converting to both carbon dioxide and alcohol. Malting harnesses the natural enzymes in grains to help that process. Cereal grains are packed with starch, which the seed uses as fuel to sprout and grow. When the outer layer of the grain is exposed to water, a chemical process kicks off that feeds the dormant embryo, giving the plant what it needs to grow past the top layer of soil. Malting is a way to harness that natural process, soaking the seeds and dehydrating through heat to trap those enzymes in a dormant state, Josh explains. Those enzymes are ready to go back to work, and then you have a very durable product that can be shipped and stored, he adds. The Cody's grow a few hundred acres of grain on their family farm, including varieties of barley, wheat, rye, and millet. Everything is malted on land that's been homesteaded for 90 years. The Cody's were dairy farmers until 1995, when growing fields of barley for cores became the farm's primary source of income. By 2004, the farm was struggling with debt, and the Cody's were considering selling, but their grandmother suggested converting to a malting business ahead of the surge in craft breweries. Malting equipment at the time was designed for massive operations, scaled to meet the demands of companies like Coors or Budweiser, so the Cody's had to develop their own. It was born out of necessity, Josh says. We engineered a lot of technology that other maltsters now use around the country. When CMC started, the craft malt world was just a handful of companies. Now it numbers in the hundreds, with competition like Proximity Malt setting up shop not far from the Cody's farm. With business changing and the market evolving, Jason said they've shifted more to malting grains for distilleries than breweries in the past half dozen years. We're at our maximum production capacity right now, bar none, Jason says. Most malting companies keep a brewing system on hand to test their malts. The Cody's just take it one step further. Five years ago, the Cody's launched Colorado Farm Brewery, where they pioneer new malts from their fields. A lot of our smoked malt catalog came about after tasting the beers Josh made with it, Jason says. It's cool to be able to taste our flavors real-time instead of depending on our customers for feedback. Ingenuity and efficiency are necessary for both the farm and the brewery, the brothers explain. 
Making beer is a very water-intensive process, while the San Luis Valley has some of the lowest precipitation in the state. Josh worked with the state of Colorado to develop a recycling program for the brewery's wastewater, minimizing the impact on water usage as much as possible. We need irrigation water all the time, Jason says. To be able to take the grain out of the field, make a beer with it, then put the wastewater back on the crops is pretty rad. The Cody's know that both CMC and the brewery will need to expand to meet demands from customers. But Jason insists they want to keep the family feel and continue to stay away from normal commercial growth models. We want our business to be in harmony here, he says. We'll grow with the companies we work with, but we don't want to turn this into the next thing available in every liquor store. We want people to have to seek us out, come find us, and experience what we are. The roosts, sizzling shishitos, and banging cauliflower make happy hour even happier. By John Lundorf. I might be in a better mood if I went out for happy hour more often. That's my big finding from some recent research in Longmont. Like a lot of folks, I forgot about happy hour when the pandemic arrived and hadn't been back. When I joined Boulder Weekly drink columnist Matt Mainpaw for midweek happy hour at the Roost, I remembered why I loved it. Affordable drinks and big flavored small plates. We split crispy polenta bites with chevre, a smoked tomato puree and balsamic syrup. The ahi poke bowl was good, but the aha tastes were two near-perfect and very simple appetizers. Bang and cauliflower cloaks fried florets in a thin, crispy coating that holds the temperature and serves as a vehicle for a spicy dipping sauce. Best of all were the blistered shishitos, flash-fried and simply dished with salt and lime juice. The mildly hot chilies made me want to have another cocktail. Boulder Recipe Flashback Marie's Famous Chicken Marie's Cafe in North Boulder dished homestyle breakfast and lunch for 34 years and was known for its Czech Kolacek pastries and crispy schnitzel. The recipe was published in a spiral-bound community cookbook, The Best of Boulder Two, compiled in 1979 by the Boulder Community Hospital Auxiliary. Marie's Café Chicken Paprikash One chicken in pieces, three to four pounds. One large yellow onion, peeled and chopped. One half cup chopped bacon. One quarter cup butter. One half tablespoon Hungarian paprika. One and a half cups chicken broth. Two tablespoons flour. Three quarters of a cup sour cream. One half teaspoon salt. Cut chicken in small pieces, or by chicken wings, breasts, thighs, etc. Put in a deep saucepan. Cook onion and bacon in butter, stirring over medium heat for a few minutes. Add chicken, salt, and paprika. Brown the chicken, turning pieces occasionally for about 10 minutes. Add broth, cover pan, lower heat to simmer, and cook for about 45 minutes. Remove chicken from pan when tender and set aside. Sprinkle flour in pan liquid and combine before stirring in sour cream. Add chicken and simmer five minutes. Serve with egg noodles or bread dumplings. Optional, add a cup of roasted green chilies, chopped or pureed, right after the sour cream.
Another road route attraction, good golf fare. After writing about golf food for several years, I've learned two things. Most golfers admit that the food served at many Colorado clubs, public and private, tends to be subpar. There are also notable exceptions that aren't at members-only places, such as TPC Colorado. The PGA course in Berthoud boasts the longest hole at any U.S. professional golf course, the 773-yard par 5 13th hole. Its huge clubhouse features a lounge and three eateries open to the public. There's 473, a high-end steakhouse, plus a takeout cafe and the casual center stage restaurant, where I grabbed lunch recently. Every seat has a sweeping view of the course and the foothills, and the fare is quite good and fairly reasonably priced for a golf club fare. I smiled over the freshness of the whole boneless walleye fried in a light ale batter and dished with malt vinegar, tartar sauce, and lemon. Center Stage also offers pizzas, steaks, a legit Caesar salad, and a juicy prime rib French dip hoagie dished with provolone, horseradish cream, and au jus. It's worth the drive for the house tots, a true flavor bomb. Crowning crispy hot spudlets are house-smoked pulled pork, sriracha aioli, cotija cheese, and chimichurri sauce. Culinary Calendar, Fall Food Fun. The Lafayette Brew Fest is September 10th, pouring beverages from Cellar West, Liquid Mechanics, Mother Tucker, Westbound and Down, Odd 13, Front Range Brewing, and others. LafayetteColorado.com. Sunbeam Farm on Cherryvale Road hosts farm dinners September 10th and 24th with Chef Juliette Wells. Info at sunbeamfarm.com. Longmont Restaurant Week, October 7th to 16th, kicks off September 29th with a farm-to-table dinner at Boulder County Fairgrounds. longmontrestaurantweek.com. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.